Today is day four of our 2023 summer seven-day session, and it's the 10th of January. I think I may have said on the, yesterday that it was the 10th, so for people who are listening to the podcast, um, it may be slightly confusing when you listen, but I'll go by the, the day number rather than the date. We'll be continuing to... Um, read and comment on passages from The Unborn, The Life and Teaching of Zen Master Banke, translated and with an introduction by Norman Waddell. When I was a young man, I went around the country wasting time and energy on ascetic practices, all because I wanted to discover my Buddha mind. I ended up bringing on serious illness instead. I've been confined to sick beds for long periods, so I've learned all about sickness at first hand. Everyone who is born into this world and receives bodily form is therefore bound to experience illness. To, to have a body and mind is, is to be guaranteed pain sooner or later. This is um, the, the, the teaching on which Buddhism is built. Um, the first noble truth, unenlightened life is suffering. The Buddha's search began with, with suffering. He saw the suffering of, of, of sickness, old age, and death when he went out of the palace. And he, when he developed his, his 12 links of dependent co-arising, um, he started at the end of that, that, that series in terms of asking, where, why do we suffer? Where does suffering come from? And he came up with this this um, 12 links of dependent co-arising and also with the Four Noble Truths which are common to all the different schools of Buddhism. And he's sometimes likened to a, a physician, a great physician, because the way he set these out um, was uh, similar to how a doctor might talk about an illness. First there was the disease, suffering. Then he looked into what the causes of the disease were and he, um, to cut a long story short, discerned that grasping is the cause of our disease. Then he offered prognosis that there is in fact a way out of our suffering if we can release our grasping, or as, or as Banke would put it, if we can reside in the unborn. And then the, the fourth part was his prescription for, for a cure from this disease, the Eightfold Path. But like any, any prescription, uh, it's the taking the medicine that is the important part. 
it's all very well for you to receive a description of of the the, the path to um, health and happiness, but you have to actually take the medicine to walk the path. Not so much in our text, but in in um, contemporary Buddhist teaching, um, a distinction is made between pain and suffering. Pain is the unavoidable part; it can be physical or or um, social, personal. The, the this is the pain that we'll experience sooner or later. Um, the pain of birth, of sickness, of old age, of dying, from being separated from those we love, um, equally painful, having to put up with people or situations that we find irksome. Everything is constantly shifting and changing. And so even our, our pleasures have pain built in, in the sense that um, sooner or later that, that pleasure will end. That's, that's the nature of the conditioned universe that we live in. This is, uh, and, and losing our, uh, having to, to farewell some pleasurable state or, or um, karmic result is acutely painful. This is um, illustrated uh, in the uh, law that exists around the, the um, six realms of existence and how in the, in the deva realm, the, the realm of, of seemingly endless ex and exquisite pleasure, at a certain point, even though the devas are there for these immeasurably long periods of time, Eventually, their beautiful garlands of flowers, which they wear at all time, start to fade and brown and, and drop off. And their own bodies, these, these devas' bodies, go from being glowingly beautiful to starting to also decay and to smell. So the smell of decay is part of it as well. And the, the devas are, are inconsolable when this process starts to unfold. They've had no um, motivation to uh, realize their true nature or practice because of their exquisite comfort. And of course, when this, this decay starts to happen, it's already too late.
back to Banke talking about sickness. Everyone who is born into this world and receives bodily form is therefore bound to experience illness. But if you become confirmed in the unborn Buddha mind, you aren't troubled by the suffering that normally accompanies illness. Illness and suffering are differentiated. Illness is illness, and the suffering is the suffering. Now the way it works is this. Being originally unborn, the Buddha mind has no concern with either pain nor joy. Since being unborn means that it is completely detached from thought, and since it is through the arising of thoughts that you experience both pain and joy, so long as the Buddha nature remains as it is in its original unbornness, unworried by and unattached to illness, it doesn't experience suffering. But if a thought arises from the ground of the unborn and you start to worry about your illness, you create suffering for yourself. You change your Buddha mind into suffering. It can't be helped. The sufferings of hell itself are no different. Um, in this passage, we can take, when he talks about illness, he's talking about, about the unavoidable pain, the pain that comes with having a body and a mind. Uh, but then the worry that we add on top of that, the narratives we, we tell ourselves about us, our sickness, that we could say is the, the suffering part. Now suppose someone is suffering because he worries anxiously about his illness. The illness may at some point begin to improve, yet because he worries over and above the original illness, about the medicine being wrong or about the physician being inept, he changes the Buddha mind into various painful thoughts until the de disease in his mind becomes a more serious affliction than the original illness. While the turmoil of thoughts crowd through his mind as he attempts to escape from his illness, the original illness may gradually continue to improve and he may regain his health but now he suffers because he's plagued by the troubled thoughts churning in his mind, which have grown and intensified in the course of his illness and recovery. This can be so much so that, that, that um, the suffering added on top of the pain can, can um, make it difficult to see the actual improvements that can be happening. I think in, in dealing with illness, whether it's our own or somebody that we're looking after, to, to be sure to take note of uh, how our spirits are doing. It's not just the physical illness that we, we need to address, but um, how, it, how it affects us emotionally. It continues, but even though I say this, if someone who is down with an illness or undergoing any other kind of suffering were to say that he doesn't suffer, he would have to be called a liar. His ignorant, he's ignorant of the way in which the Buddha mind works. If he pledged on his honor that he was positively not suffering, it would only mean that his suffering was taking the form of not suffering. 
There is no way such a person could be free from suffering. It's a little convoluted here, but I'm guessing that what he's saying here is um, don't think that there are any guarantees in terms of uh, uh, not feeling pain, that pain is part of illness. And, and for that reason, um, we need to make friends with it, accept it, not think that we're going to get um, uh, off scot-free because maybe because we have some some understanding, some some realization of the, of the unborn. He says, "Take his, his suffering was taking his suffering was taking the form of not suffering." I think this refers to that point about um, our even our not suffering has an element of suffering in it because of impermanence. Since the working of illuminative wisdom is intrinsic to the Buddha mind by which it knows and perfectly differentiates not only suffering but all other things as well, when the sickness comes, the Buddha mind remains free of any involvement or concern with pain or suffering. But even then, since you will inevitably think about your sickness, it's best at times to give yourself up to the sickness and to moan when there is pain. Then all the time, both you're sick and when you're well, you'll be living in the unborn Buddha mind. But you ought to be aware that when thought becomes involved in your suffering, the Buddha mind is changed into the thought of sickness or the thought of suffering, quite apart from the sickness itself, and you will be suffering because of that. There are um, koans about this very point of um, becoming one with our suffering. When, it, when we're in pain, to moan, to be, to be one with, them, with the pain. But there is, there is also, and, and, and we'd say that with serious illness, um, there are often many things to think about, decisions to be made about treatments, um, changing conditions of the body uh, quickly over time. And it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, demanding time, uh, serious illness, especially uh, before death, when there's a lot actually going on and uh, it, it makes demands on the people around the sick person and of the sick person themselves. So there is thought that has to happen, decisions that have to be made, choices. But at the same time, we can watch out for 
when the mind is, is changed into the thought of sickness or the thought of suffering, because this is the suffering that we can do without, that we don't need to add on top of the pain. And practice can help us to see the difference between the, ne the necessary choices that have to be made and um, turning, turning our sickness or our illness into um, some kind of a static object that we obsess about or worry about. The unborn Buddha mind is originally free from all thought. So, so long as a person is ignorant of the Buddha mind's unbornness and suffers because he has changed it into thought, no matter how loudly he may deny his suffering, his denial, the notion that I'm not suffering, is only a determination he has created out of thought. He couldn't possibly be detached from suffering. He may think he's not suffering, but inasmuch as he hasn't confirmed himself in the unborn Buddha mind that is detached from birth and death, that very birth and death is the cause of his suffering. And here he's, he's contrasting a true realization of the unborn nature of things as opposed to an idea about things being unborn. This is why we attend Sishin to, to embody this truth for ourselves, to taste it for ourselves, so that it's no longer just an idea, but, but a reality for us. And short of that, we will be tossed about by birth and death. That's a given. The working of your bright, illuminating Buddha mind is as different from an ordinary mirror as a cloud is from mud. Kyoto, Osaka, Edo, Sendai, Nagasaki, or wherever, once you've been and seen a place, even after many years pass and you're at an entirely different location, if someone else who has been there comes and talks to you about it, your conversation will go along in agreement. Moreover, when a mirror is able only to illuminate and show objects a yard or two away at most, the working of the Buddha mind's resplendent clarity is such that you can see and recognize a person over a block away. You can see a towering mountain peak 50 leagues distant, even behind rows of hills, and your Buddha mind can tell that it's Mount Fuji or Mount Kongo or some other mountain. So while the Buddha mind is often compared to a mirror, how vastly different its brightness really is. Even the sun and moon light up only the heavens and the earth. The marvelous brightness of the Buddha mind, by means of words, is able to enlighten people and deliver them from their illusions one by one. And when someone hears the truth and understands and affirms them, 
he will know for himself that the Buddha mind's wonderful brightness surpasses even the brightness of the sun and the moon. What an incalculable treasure our Buddha mind is. Our Buddha mind can reach beyond the, the farthest reaches of the universe. Interesting here that he, he um, talks of the power of the, the brightness of our mind to um, uh, enlighten people by means of words. Of course, he himself is, is teaching by means of words. His teaching coming out of his intimate experience does have this power to enlighten people to deliver them from their illusions one by one, he says. But it, he could equally say that, that um, we deliver ourselves, the, the, that the, um, the words are fingers pointing in the direction we need to go, but we actually have to go that direction ourselves. But we shouldn't underrate the importance of these fingers pointing at the moon. A monk said to Banke, I was born with a short temper. It's always flaring up. My master has remonstrated with me time and again, but it hasn't done any good. I know I should do something about it, but I was born with a bad temper, and I'm able to rid myself of it no matter how hard I try. Is there anything I can do to correct it? This time, I'm hoping that with your teaching, I'll be able to cure myself. Then, when I go back home, I'll be able to face my master again, and of course, I will benefit by it for the rest of my life. Please tell me what to do. Banke. That's an interesting inheritance you have. Is your temper here now? Bring it out. I'll cure it for you. Monk. I'm not angry right now. My temper comes on unexpectedly when something provokes me. You were born with it. You, w you weren't born with it then. You created it yourself when some pretext or other happened to you? Where would your temper be at such times if you didn't cause it? You work yourself into a temper because of your partiality for yourself, opposing others in order to have your own way. Then you unjustly accuse your parents of having burdened you with a short temper. What an extremely unfilial son you are. You wonder if that would provoke his temper to come forth. This, um, this approach of, of asking him to bring forth his, his uh, the monk's temper, it's a little bit like the one that people would have heard of between Huay Ke and Bodhidharma when Huay Ke asks Bodhidharma to set his mind at rest and Bodhidharma says, um, bring forth your mind and I will settle it for you. 
and Waikar says, I've looked for my mind everywhere, Master, and I cannot find it. And then Bodhidharma says, and so I've put it to rest for you. Pacified it. He continues, each person receives the Buddha mind from his parents when he's born. His illusion is something he produces all lo alone by being partial to himself. We might take, take issue with this all alone. We, we you could say that we, we construct our illusions um, in tandem with our, our circumstances and conditioning. But what Banke is wanting here is for us to take responsibility for uh, one's own mind. It's foolish to think that it's inherent, this anger he's talking about. When you don't produce your temper, where is it? All illusions are the same. As long as you don't produce them, they cease to exist. That's what everyone fails to realize. There they are, creating from their own selfish desires and deluded mental habits, something that isn't inherent, but thinking it is. On account of this, they are unable to avoid being deluded in whatever they do. When we, when we say that, that um, we, we're unable to rid ourselves of our, of our habits, no matter how hard we try, we're, we're reifying ourselves. We're, we're turning ourselves from what, what we are, which is a process, into uh, a fixed thing. You must certainly cherish your illusions dearly for you to change the Buddha nature into them just so you can be deluded. If you only knew the great value of the Buddha mind, there's no way you could ever be deluded again, not even if you wanted to be. Fix this clearly in your head. When you are not deluded, you're a Buddha, and that means you're enlightened. There is no other way for you to become a Buddha. So draw close and listen carefully and be sure you understand what I say. I think this is a very um, liberating thing to understand when he says, um, when you're not deluded, you are a Buddha and that means you're enlightened. Just think about any, any day in our lives and where, where we may have missed moments when we weren't deluded. They may have been very fleeting, but they existed, many of them actually. <coughs> when, we, when we act selflessly, when we um, just do what's in front of us wholeheartedly, many, many moments throughout any day when we're a Buddha. 
when we speak a kind word to somebody or feel our anger rising and just sigh and let it go. When we reach out our hand and take a cup and drink. He continues, you create your outbursts of temper when the organs of your sixth senses, that's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and, and thinking, are stimulated by some external condition and incite you to oppose other people because you desire to assert your own precociously held ideas. When you have no attachment to self, there are no illusions. Have that perfectly clear. All your parents gave you when you were born was a Buddha mind, nothing else. What have you done with it? From time you were a tiny baby, you've watched and listened to people losing their tempers around you. You have been schooled in this until you too have become habituated to irascibility. So now you indulge in frequent fits of anger, but it's foolish to think that's inherent. They're learned, you could say, learned behaviors, as he says, being that he's become, this guy's become habituated to irascibility. But of course, anything that we can learn, we learn, we can unlearn. Anything that's conditioned or, or fabricated, we can deconstruct. It may not happen overnight. It may take a great length of time, but it's possible. So now you indulge in frequent fits of anger, but it's foolish to think that's inherent. Right now, if you realize you've been mistaken and don't allow your temper to arise anymore, you'll have no temper to worry about. I think it's more common actually to still allow it to arise, but not act on it. This would be an, uh, a step in the process. Or might even before that step, you might just have the being aware of the anger arising. And before that, uh, being able to look back on a situation and, and recognize where anger arose. So small steps. But eventually, you'll be able to catch it sooner and sooner. Acknowledge it, recognize it, but not let it flower into something. Instead of trying to correct it, don't produce it in the first place. That's the quickest way, don't you agree? Trying to do something about it after it occurs is very troublesome and futile besides. Don't get angry to begin with, then there's no need to cure anything. There's nothing left to cure. That's the ideal, but most of us, um, go through these steps. But eventually, 
that anger stops arising so frequently, or it arises and then dissipates. Once you've realized this and you stop creating that temper of yours, you'll find that you won't have any other illusions either, not even if you want to, for you'll be living constantly in the unborn Buddha mind. There is nothing else. Since everything is in perfect harmony, if you live and work in the unborn mind of the Buddha, my school... Oops, let me read that again. Uh, Since everything is in perfect harmony, if you live and work in the unborn Buddha mind of the Buddhas, and then he gives an aside, my school is also known as the Buddha mind sect, live in the Buddha mind and you're a living Buddha from that moment on. This is the priceless thing directly pointed to. I, I want you to trust completely in what I've been telling you. Do just as I've said. To start with, try to stay in the unborn for 30 days. Once you've accustomed yourself to that, then you'll find it's impossible to live apart from the unborn. It will come naturally to you then, and even if you don't want to, even if you grow tired of it, there'll still be no way you can avoid living in the unborn and doing an admirable job of it too. Everything you do will be according to the unborn. You'll be a living Buddha. You should all listen to my words as if you were newly born this very day. If something's on your mind, if you have any preconception, you can't really take in what I say. But if you listen as if you were a newborn child, it'll be like hearing me for the first time. Since then there's nothing in your mind, you can take it right in, grasp it even from a single word, and fully realize the Buddha's Dharma. we engage in this process of, of emptying out the mind uh, in our practice. It's, it's essential. We could, we could really say that, that practice is about losing, losing our impediments, shedding them, rather than gaining anything or acquiring anything or, or formulating anything. Rather, it's about Releasing, 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 releasing. Allowing ourselves to become more and more receptive. There's a, there's a story that um, is near or at the beginning of uh, one of the pioneering books about Zen in the West called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And it tells of a, uh, a scholar coming to see a master and asking the master for teaching. And then the master uh, says, well, let's we'll have a cup of tea. And um, he brings out the, tea, the teapot and the cups and, and, and um, the, the, the scholar is already um, spouting different theories and uh, his understanding, his showing the master's understanding of, of 
Buddhism and Zen, and the master's pouring his tea and just keeps pouring even when the cup is brimming over and spilling. And the, the, the guy, the, the scholar says, Master, Master, you're, you're the, the tea is pouring over the cup. And the master says, well, that's like your mind. It's full. There's no room for anything. Empty your mind of every, every concept. Another question on this one, a laywoman from Izumo. She says, according to what you say, all we have to do is simply remain effortlessly in the Buddha mind. Don't you think that teaching is too lightweight? Banke, lightweight, you set no store by the Buddha mind. You get angry and turn it into a fighting spirit. You give vent to selfish desires and change it into a hungry ghost or do something foolish and convert it into an animal. You deludedly turn the Buddha mind into all sorts of different things. That's lightweight, not my teaching. Nothing is of more gravity and nothing more praiseworthy than living in the Buddha mind. So you may think when I tell you to live in the Buddha mind that it's lightweight, but believe me, it's just because it has such weight that you're unable to do it. This, however, might give you the idea that living in the Buddha mind is a very difficult business. But isn't it true that if you listen carefully to my teaching, understand it well, and live in the Buddha mind, then simply and easily, without doing any hard work, you're a living Buddha this very day. This is... Not something he's just saying, but he sees this potential in each of his students. Not just potential, actual functioning of a Buddha mind. You decided after hearing what I said that dwelling effortlessly in the Buddha mind was an easy matter. But in fact, it's not easy, so you go on transforming it into a fighting spirit, a hungry ghost or animal. You get angry, even over trifles. When you do, you create the cause of rebirth as a fighting spirit. So though you may not be aware of it, you're spending your existence as a human being creating a fighting spirit of the first order. And sure enough, if you work earnestly at it, you'll not only be a fighting spirit during your lifetime, you'll fall into such an existence after you die as well. Have no doubt about it. On account of self-interest, you toil away to turn the Buddha mind into greed and desire. Since that's the cause of re rebirth as a denizen of the realm of hungry ghosts, you're unknowingly paving the way for re rebirth into that realm. You're already readying yourself for a post-mortem fall into a hungry ghost existence. It's a foregone conclusion. You'll surely end up there. 
Owing to selfish thoughts and aims, you dwell on one thought after another, fretting senselessly over things that can get you nowhere. Continuing on like that, unable to stop, you turn the Buddha mind into ignorance. Ignorance causes you to be reborn as an animal. It's clear even now, while you're alive and busy creating the cause of such a wretched fate, that when you die, you'll enter that existence. I see people unaware of this, dedicating their lives to carefully fashioning the very causes of their rebirth into the three evil realms. It's pitiful. I think of something that Miller Raper said about, about um, most of us hurtling towards the very opposite of what we want, um, hurtling towards pain and suffering and through our actions and, and uh, foregoing joy and, and uh, realization. It's pitiful. They're reserving seats for the passage. You say seats on the, on the bus to, to suffering. But when you don't change your Buddha mind into a fighting spirit, hungry ghost or animal, you can't avoid dwelling naturally in the Buddha mind. It's obvious, isn't it? Laywoman says, yes, of course, it's true. We, we, can, we can translate what, what Bunker is saying here about these different realms into um, how we understand things, how we understand psychology and, and uh, the way the brain works. We know more and more about this. And we, we strengthen our habits uh, in the direction of anger or jealousy or craving. Um, we, we set ourselves up for more suffering through this. There's that saying in, in um, neuropsychology, what fires together, what wires together, fires together. Our, our repeated return to to um, angry thoughts or impatience or greed, whatever our um, flavor of the week is, then we, we, we strengthen those habit forces. One last um, question and answer. Monk, you're always teaching people that they should live in the unborn. To me, that seems like telling them to live purposelessly, without any aim. Banke, you call dwelling in the unborn Buddha mind being without purpose? You don't stay in the unborn Buddha mind yourself. Instead, you're always working enthusiastically at other things, doing this, doing that. 
spending all your time transforming your Buddha mind into something else. What could be more purposeless than that? The monk made no reply. Banke, live in the unborn. It's certainly not purposeless. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.